This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 1st, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. New Mexico recently eliminated civil asset forfeiture entirely. That's the process by which police take your property and may never convict you or even charge you with a crime. Paul Guessing is president of the Rio Grande Foundation. We spoke at the State Policy Network's annual meeting this week. Many states have civil asset forfeiture. The overwhelming majority of states have civil asset forfeiture. The federal government uh, and states cooperate on civil asset forfeiture, but New Mexico has done away with it. That's right. How? Well, amazingly enough, it was a unanimous move by New Mexico's legislature in the 2015 legislative session, and the bill was then signed by Governor Susana Martinez, a former prosecutor. So to say that it's an unlikely story and a a feel-good story would be a bit of an understatement. It was, uh, yes, the first and foremost, civil asset forfeiture is a process by which your goods, your property can be seized essentially being charged by uh, by the government with a crime, the property itself, and then taken. Uh, criminal asset forfeiture would imply a criminal conviction, and that is the process as it exists now in New Mexico. You do have to be uh, convicted of a crime if your goods are going to be seized by the state and uh, or the government. That's a very good thing, uh, and According to the organization FreedomWorks, of all the 50 states, New Mexico has the best laws relating to forfeiture of any state in the country, and we're very proud of that. It's it's almost unbelievable to most people, even some police, that this is uh, routine in states. Yeah, once you actually explore and uh, see the details of the process of civil asset forfeiture, it becomes pretty outrageous to anyone, no matter where they are in the political spectrum, unless, of course, you are getting money directly from that process. If your budget for policing is uh, in large part due to that process, then you may support it. Uh, But as Americans, average citizens, there's widespread concern and outrage about this kind of thing happening. And that's a big part of why New Mexico was able to enact the laws that it it in fact did. Was there a a case that really put into sharp relief the problems of civil asset forfeiture in New Mexico? Because if it's one of one or two states that have gotten rid of it, it seems like those kinds of examples ought to exist everywhere. There were three primary factors leading to Uh, New Mexico having this success. One, shortly before our legislative session, which began in January of 2015, uh, Pete Connolly, who was the Las Cruces city attorney, was speaking at a law enforcement convention there in uh, in his town. Uh, Local folks or local folks and involved people. uh, And he made comments on the record, on film, saying, Civil asset forfeiture is a gold mine. We could be czars. We could own the city. If you see two cars driving down the street, of course, this being to cops uh, in the room, pull over the Cadillac uh, with the burnout light bulb, not the Hyundai with the burnout light bulb. 
because that is the one that's more likely to get you more goodies. This was all on camera. This was picked up by the New York Times and reported and became certainly an, an outrageous uh, thing that was certainly, we, we used it uh, to push for civil asset forfeiture reform. Then there were uh, a father and son, the Skinners. They were uh, African-American. They had taken $17,000 in cash. They were traveling by car from Chicago on their way to Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, to do some gambling and help uh, the dad's sister repair her house. And they wound up in New Mexico. And we have a town called Las Vegas as well. It's a much smaller uh, city. They wound up being waylaid by the cops uh, for going five miles over the speed limit. They were con constantly harassed throughout the state. Ultimately, the $17,000 were taken from them with mere pennies in their pocket for their trip back to Chicago. Uh, so a very outrageous case. The ACLU took that up locally in New Mexico and was indeed able to get this money back. But that case was the primary one used by uh, organizations like mine who were concerned about this process. And then we had a unique uh, individual involved, a fellow named Brad Cates, who uh, was involved in the 80s in the Reagan administration with setting up civil asset forfeiture at the federal level, happened to be a former New Mexico legislator from New Mexico, and was integrally involved in the legislative process, helping uh, as the primary staff person in our volunteer part-time legislature uh, with the uh, House Judiciary Committee chairman to educate legislators uh, about this process and its harms. And uh, he knew all of the ins and outs of the legislation was very good uh, as a resource. So those are three unique things. There was also, of course, a bipartisan coalition involving my organization, the Rio Grande Foundation, Institute for Justice, the local ACLU, and the Drug Policy Alliance. So when legislators see that kind of strong bipartisan agreement uh, coming from groups like that, uh, it really helped move this process further along. So it was an incredible confluence. Uh, we also caught the, the police lobby, if you will, off guard because we were really the first state to act in this aggressive manner. And now uh, other states are being warned by uh, those folks, don't become the next New Mexico. So we hope that we can educate them to the counter that they should become the next New Mexico, follow what we did, and stand up for the Fourth Amendment for the citizens of uh, our country. So you say that, uh, that this coalition was aggressive in uh, trying to eliminate, not just mitigate or require some higher standard of evidence or anything, but actually eliminate civil asset forfeiture entirely. What tactics would you suggest for other states that would like to consider doing this uh, doing this as well? Well, it, be aggressive. Yeah, we, I don't think at the outset, thought that such an aggressive bill would get through the process. In fact, my primary uh, advocacy was that rather than the local departments being able to keep the money, uh, as was previously the process, that it should just be passed into the general funds of the state. 
and that would have eliminated, and that's one of the key provisions of this legislation that did ultimately pass, is that it eliminates the, the direct interest local law enforcement agencies have in uh, abusing this process. Because if you're getting 30, 40, 50 percent of your budget or more from uh, civil asset forfeiture proceeds, it makes you very interested in keeping those uh, flowing. If you're going into the general fund, then it, it kind of just gets put into that process and the state uh, legislature controls that. So I would say be aggressive first and foremost. Uh, go for the best possible bill you can get. But more so, uh, you've got to mitigate against the local police department uh, lobbies. And those folks are very connected, obviously, very involved in the process. But you have to point out that this is a constitutional protection. Uh, government's there to serve its citizens, not for citizens to serve and fund the government through these non-appropriated processes. So if you're talking to a legislator, you say, look, you are the appropriator of finances in this state. This is a direct abuse of that system. They are taking your authority as a legislator away from you by self-financing through this abusive process. And if you're talking to a legislator, that can be very persuasive because they're ultimately uh, jealous of their power to a great extent. And it sounds, yeah, it sounds like a very, inf very uh, appealing argument to say that these cops are, in some sense, uh, stealing from you. Right. Your authority, at least, and the ability to appropriate money, which obviously uh, we know in Washington and the state houses, uh, appropriating money is a, uh, a singular type of authority and something that legislators and all elected officials really uh, do want to protect. In, in some cases, uh, I have heard that forfeiture funds account for a large share, 10% or more, of many police departments' uh, budgets. So was there a, is there a, do you have a sense of how much forfeiture accounted for any, any particular local police departments in New Mexico? I don't have the percentage data off the top of my head. I know that uh, the city of Albuquerque it was reported that they were taking in about two to two point four million a year. Uh, that's of course the largest city in the state, New Mexico, about a half million people in in that city. So that's uh, for any department, uh, even a big one, uh, two two and a half million dollars is a good chunk of change. Uh, and I know that this money would go to a variety of purposes. Some would put it back into equipment. Some would put it back into uh, bonuses and whatnot for uh, officers. And of course, there's a famous case from Texas where the local police department bought a margarita machine with their civil asset forfeiture proceeds. Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, are great to talk about and show that this can be truly an abusive process with that kind of purchase. The argument from police officers uh, in several forums I've seen, their argument essentially boils down to, we do good things with the money, and it's really hard for us to arrest these people and charge them with crimes when we don't have evidence. So we're still doing some good for fighting crime when we seize these assets. Yeah, that gets back to just requiring the criminal conviction, because I think that it's still a very powerful thing in this country that 
the concept of innocent until proven guilty, and the idea that you should be uh, treated so poorly having to prove that you did not do a given crime and, uh, and have that burden upon yourself is something that uh, the average person can get. Uh, certainly, in today's age where there's a lot more skepticism and, to an extent, kind of a, a leap to defend police officers, we're not trying to get into that, are you pro-cop or anti-cop? We're trying to say we are pro-police officer, but we're pro-accountability for both themselves and the departments. And I think that the skepticism has had a positive impact overall in terms of helping people understand, the average citizen understand that police officers and police departments have their own interests, often that may conflict with the protections and the constitutional rights of average individuals. So that's that's been helpful in this whole thing. But uh, you certainly don't want to be seen as anti-police officer. Uh, and to an extent, the governor in her signing statement, of course being a prosecutor, took issue with the idea and we did promote this, and I think it's still a valid case to be made, a point to be made in the issue of civil asset forfeiture, uh, the, the statement policing for profit. And the governor did react negatively, and she made a specific point in her signing statement on this bill to uh, push back on that, which is fine. She still gave us the victory, and she just said the phrase policing for profit has negative connotations. And I, I expect nothing else from somebody who spent a long time in law enforcement. But uh, it's not anti-police, not anti-cop to be supportive of protections for individuals, uh, making sure that they need uh, a conviction in order to take your, your goods, your car, your house, your business, et cetera. Uh, so we're going to get through that middle ground of balancing, and that's really what this is all about. Paul Guessing is president of the Rio Grande Foundation. Learn more about civil asset forfeiture abuse at our website, cato.org.